Well, good morning to uh, all of you, and we're glad that you're, you're here this morning. We're going to continue our look at the book of James, but we're actually going to enter a portion of James that is uh, uh, probably the most controversial part of his letter, and uh, perhaps uh, one of the most controversial parts of all of the Bible. And I'm going to walk us through it and try to make sense of it for uh, all of us and and if you have questions, uh, we invite those. If you're from a different faith tradition and you've heard other things about this, I encourage you to look deeply into the Scriptures, examine it for yourself, and see what it is that the Apostle James is saying uh, and how that squares with the rest of the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther, the Reformer, uh, did not like this part of the book of James. In fact, he called the book of James an epistle of straw, and he didn't feel that it belonged in the Bible. And I think uh, in all uh, fairness to Martin Luther, he lived in a time when to uh, say the things he said about justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ plus nothing uh, was a real battle. It, you put yourself at risk of uh, being killed or imprisoned. And so... Uh, there were reasons why he would emotionally and intellectually not like what James was saying. But I don't think that James is saying what Luther, and again, I'm, I hate to even compare what I think to what Luther thought, uh, but I am going to try to bring that inside. I don't think Luther fully uh, grasped what James was trying to get at, and they didn't have a lot of the information that we have today about when books were written, archaeological evidence, things like that. So let's read this passage of Scripture. Get your Bible out, uh, James chapter 2. I'm going to read just these few verses uh, from chapter 2, starting with verse 14. And uh, now hear God's Word. What good is it, my brothers, if, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe this and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
This is the word of the Lord. James says something that's remarkable. He says, you say you have faith, for you believe that God is one. He's quoting uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema, which was the confessional standard for all of ancient uh, Hebrew nation, for, the, for Judaism, modern Judaism today, and for all of Christianity, that we believe God is one. He is a unity, completely integral, and there are no other gods beside him. Then he says, good for you. In fact, uh, it could be translated, some translation do say that, uh, good for you. Even the demons believe this orthodox, doctrinal, genuine, true thing. Even demons believe that and they tremble with terror. So the question that James is addressing here is something that is so foundational to Christianity. It's so fundamental. It's in those of you that have been in our theology class and in uh, uh, our adult Sunday schools and elsewhere, the cone of certainty. This is way up in the cone of certainty. Not in the tip top, but it's up there that faith in one, the one true God is the way to salvation. It's the way to be right with God. So here, here I want to, to take a pause, and, and we may have to spend a couple weeks with this because it is one of those uh, things that, that I think is so fundamental to the Christian faith and understanding what faith is, understanding what good works are, uh, that everyone can benefit. If you have a friend or family member who's just not sure what they believe, then here I'm going to give you a little set of things that you could, if they wanted to, someone was questioning or seeking, trying to figure things out. Here's what you can you can start with. If they, if they ask a question, someone wants to know, if there's a God, is there a God? Well, is there? You know that 98% of the world believes there is some sort of a higher power, a deity, a God, a, a being, a, a power, cosmic something greater than just here and now people. 98%, less than 2% of the population of the world are true atheists. In other words, they don't believe that there exists anything other than just the natural world and uh, th that everything happened just by time plus matter plus chance. Most people believe something was out there, something directed it. And the argument goes something like this, very simple. If there's no God, if there's no God, if it's just random chance and choice uh, of molecules bumping into each other and atoms organizing themselves and so on, then how do we even know what is good or bad? Did morality just spring from that evolution or did it, was it given to us somewhere else? And why are some of these universal truths that are held by human beings of every religion, with no exception, built in? Why are they innate? Why do we share those? Not all of them, but many. Where did they come from? So if, if you can't answer that and you say, I don't care, I, you know, it's natural selection or whatever, uh, that morality evolved along with our conscience, fine. Go that way. You're in the 2% or less, and, and we respect that. It's okay. If you're in the 98%, that believe that there's something out there bigger than you 
and bigger than the universe that gave some sort of direction and process to the universe, uh, then, then you have to ask yourself, what is that? What is that cosmic power? What is that God or gods? What are they? What is he? What is she? What is them? What is it? And then the next question. Listen carefully. This is, this is pure gold. This will help you talk to anybody about God. If you do believe that there's something out there, then how do you relate to that other thing? Whatever it is. Whatever God is. How do you relate to Him? How do you live a life that is acceptable to that God? Is it good deeds? Is it your behavior? Is it your works? Your sincerity? I've had people tell me, you just have to be sincere. Sincere doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Who knows, who knows if you're sincere? And how much sincerity? Or is it some combination of those good deeds plus sincerity? And how much? How do you weigh it? How do you measure? Are you measuring against other people? Uh, what? What is your guide? What is your benchmark? Does God weigh, here's the third question, does God weigh our good and bad? So at the end of your life, God takes you and he puts you in some scale that maybe you're not too sure about and he kind of weighs you, your good, your bad, your sincerity, he weighs it all up and sees where you fall in that scale. But again, what is the scale? How do you know? How do you figure in to that? And if it's not good deeds, it's not works, and I'm going to say it's not. I'm going to say it's not good deeds. It's not your works, because James doesn't say that either, which you'll see in a moment. And it's not your sincerity. Then what is it? And this is where all religions and Christianity diverge sharply. Not little bit. They diverge sharply. In fact, Many, many scholars say that there are only two religions in the world. One is all religions, and the other one is authentic, historic, biblical Christianity and ancient Judaism, which says that you are saved because God loves you, shows grace to you as he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, that he has mercy, and that that is all contingent on himself plus nothing. And if that's the case, if it's God's love and God's grace, then what part, here we go, this is what James is getting at, this is what every human being has to wrestle with, and you listening, and those of the few here that are with us today here at the church, our team, we all have to answer that question. How do we relate to God? If it, if it is His love and grace, are works necessary? What part does your behavior, your morality, your ethics, what part does that play? Do they matter? And the next question is, if they matter, do they contribute anything to that acceptance by God? So to the first question, does it matter if you're obedient? I say yes. James says yes. Paul says yes. God of Abraham says yes. The whole Bible says yes, it matters if you're obedient to Him or not. But He doesn't say that works save you. 
And if it's God's love, God's grace, God's mercy through faith to good works, sincerity, your good deeds, your good behavior, do they contribute anything to that? And James and Paul and Jesus and the Bible as a whole say no. Your works add nothing to your right standing before God, your relationship with Him. They are a demonstration of your faith. So quickly, let's go through this and I'll probably have to come back uh, that's a lot to take in, folks, and I know, I, I just, I sweated bullets this week over this stuff, because it is tough. It is tough to get your head around. But Paul, and the accusation is that the Apostle Paul who said, faith plus nothing is what saves you. Faith alone. R.C. Sproul used to say, the, the article upon which Christianity stands or falls is this singular article, justification by faith alone plus nothing. And James would agree with that, and I hope by the time we finish looking at these verses, you'll see that James absolutely was on target with Paul. James is just doing something different. He's just talking about faith in a different way, and he's, and he's explaining what kind of faith will save you. So look at verse 14. What good? He's going to ask a very rhetorical question. He already knows the answer. He's a good, a good teacher. He knows the answer to his question. And he says, what good is it to say you have faith, but you don't have any works? There's no obedience. There's no loyalty. There's no worship. There's no love behind it. Can that kind, and you could actually insert the word kind, although it's not in the Greek, but this is what he's getting at. This is the context. What kind, can that kind of faith save you? And the answer is no. Just to say you have faith is not enough. Something else has to accompany that faith in order to make it real faith. And then look at 15 and through 18, this little section here. He says if someone, he gives an example. This is what is so brilliant about the teaching of Scripture. These teachers don't just give a lot of propositions, which I just gave to you, that list of seven propositions, but rather they tell a story. They give an example, and he says very clearly, if someone poorly clothed, here's an example. Someone poorly clothed who lacks food, they come into your church, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, but you don't help. What good is that? What does it say about your faith? And what James says is that faith, that kind of faith, is dead. It's dead faith. And so I'm going to contrast the two kinds of faith that he, he taught. This is without referencing Paul. We're not going to pit Paul against James. They were not in a dialogue with one another and disagreeing. James was talking to a whole bunch of believing Jews, primarily maybe some Gentiles mixed in, but these are people that were scrupulous about their obedience to the law, both the moral and ceremonial and civil law. They were obedient to the max with all of that. But something else was wrong. Their faith was dead. And many in the church today, folks, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I realize that many of us 
have dead faith, not living faith, we really don't trust Jesus. And our works show that. Our words, all the things that he's been talking about, they express, they show that. We don't, we act like everybody else. We're hopeless. We're cynical. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Cynicism is absolutely, has no place in the church. Griping, complaining, carping about everything, finding fault, using your words to tear down and destroy. All of these are the works he's talking about. He's not talking about just being a nice person or being a moral person. There's lots of people more moral than Christians. There are a lot of people more moral than than me. I just don't know who they are. (laughs) There's nobody here to laugh, so I'll laugh myself. Morality is not what's at, at play here. It's what is moving you to do what God has asked us to do, to love our neighbor as ourself, the royal law that he talks about last week. We went through that. And he's saying that kind of faith that just talks and talks and talks and, and maybe is moral and good and ethical and all that, but there's something else underneath that's not there, that love and obedience and worship of the true God. That kind of faith is dead. And then he, he, this guy's brilliant. I mean, James, I don't know. He's just sharp as a tack. He comes in and he says, now I can, I can hear you objecting. He's a good rabbi, so he, he gets the idea in his mind. You know, these people are going to object. So here we go. Look at verse 15. If someone, or, or no, I'm sorry, verse 18. But someone will say, uh, you have faith, I have works. So someone might try to justify themselves saying, okay, I get what you're saying about faith, but I have works. I've got those works. So does it matter what I believe? Is this really, is this really what this is all about? And James comes back. He will not allow for this false dichotomy. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So he's setting something up here. He's saying this, and he's getting ready to prove it, and we'll look at that in a moment. He's saying it's possible. It is possible to believe, even believe in orthodox, true, right doctrine, even believe the Shema of ancient Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That, that, that was the bottom line for them and for us. And he says, that isn't it. You can have perfect belief in doctrine. You can even obey to the fullest out of raw duty or out of fear. I better, I better obey. Uh, otherwise, uh, God you know, may punish me, or obligation, you know, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. In attempt to pay back or earn, it's what we call the debtor's ethic that is pervasive in every religion. It's not just, not just Christianity. Every religion has a debtor's ethic where I owe God everything, so I'm going to do this to do what? To work off the debt to pay it down, to pay it back. Well, you you don't understand what he's done for you. 
When we do that, we are saying it is something that could be paid back. It is something that has a material value that you as a human being that I have, Ugo and, and Rick and Paulette and, and Danielle and Sal and Holly, that we have the currency to pay that back. And I'd like to know where you're going to get that currency. So we don't want to go into a debtor's ethic. We're not relating to God properly. We're trying to relate to Him by obedience. You know, you can beat your children, and we know this. We see it every day. Some of us have even done it to our own kids. We force them to obey us. And we make conditions so bad for them that they will obey. Have you ever been to a circus? And you see the, the tigers and the lions jumping around and the ringmaster snapping his whip and, they're, you know, whip, and they're growling and snarling at him. That's the kind of obedience that a lot of people are serving God. They're, they're, in, they're obeying all right, but they're snarling and they're vicious and they're mean. On the outside, they look fine. They're a nice-looking tiger, a good-looking uh, lion. Inside, they're snarling and hateful, and they're, they're judgmental of everybody else around them that aren't obeying as good as them. All James is doing is recapitulating the teaching of Jesus when he said, the Pharisees draw near to me with their mouths, but their heart is far from me. The Pharisees were scrupulously obedient, and this is who James is talking to again. He's reminding them, you can follow all these dictates, but your heart isn't in it. And that kind of faith, faith in the orthodoxy of your, of your religion, your sincerity even, is not enough. It's just not. You may have the right object, but it's not accompanied by allegiance, loyalty, devotion, a willingness to sacrifice. In other words, we all have our pet things that we like and, you know, whatever, and if God comes in and He says no, we say, well, cafeteria style, I will obey you and everything else, but this one thing, I can't. I got to have that. And it can be anything. It could be a food. It could be a person. It could be a relationship. It could be a job. It could be a certain amount of money. It could be a certain way people look at you, approval. It could be the way you look, the way you uh, stand in society. It could be anything. What is that thing? And if you have something like that, or a number of those things, if you're a normal human being, you have a bunch of them. If you have those and you see what they are, and you say, well, if God took away my money, would I be okay? And if you say, I don't know. I don't, if, he took away my, if He took away my health, he keeps taking away my health. I, can't, I don't know what to do. I go to the doctor. The doctors fix me. I go back and God gives me something else. So, oh, that's not right. Satan's giving you stuff. Yeah, he's the origin of it, but he doesn't control it. Come on. Get real about who God is. Are you willing to say, I'm all in, whatever, I'm obey, I'm loyal, I love, I will do whatever you say, I will go where you send me, I lay the sword of my life at your feet. Command me. That's uh, a prayer that uh, Tim Keller has taught people, and I, and I pray it every day. 
The absurdity of dead faith is you believe God is one, but the demons believe and shudder. Demonic faith, let me put it this way, and then we'll real quickly move on. Demonic faith is genuine, it's authentic, it's orthodox. But it's dead because it's not accompanied by willing, free, loyal, authentic obedience and worship. It's not coming from a heart that is filled with love and letting love move them along. And then he gives two examples, and this is the genius of these biblical teachers that no one, I think, without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I just don't think we can enter into this kind of thinking. But look, he gives two examples. 20 through 24, he gives an example, Abraham. By all accounts, Abraham was, well, the Bible says he was the father the father of the faithful. And Abraham knew God. He was called here in this scripture, quoting some Old Testament scripture, that he was the friend of God. They were close. They were tight in their relationship. Abraham's a good man, the father of the faithful. He knew much about God. He was very close to God. God was in a deep relationship. And so he says to the James is saying, look, I'm going to give you two examples. You want to be shown foolish person, you crazy person? That faith apart from works is useless? What he's saying is dead? You want, a, you want an example? Wasn't Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? That was chapter 22 of Genesis. Now listen carefully. Wasn't Abraham justified in Greek dikasune is the verb and it's the same verb that Paul uses when he says justified by faith alone no works but it's one of those words that has a lot of nuance and I've taught in this church and I urge all of it and all of you do this instinctually you don't get the definition from words only from a lexicon or a dictionary you get it from the context of the sentence. So very quickly, look what he does. He puts it in a context. He said, wasn't he justified by works when he offered Isaac? Look at the next part. See that faith was active. Look at how he describes that faith of Abraham. Active, it followed along with the work, and it was complete, and it completed his works. So that, or in order that, the scripture could be fulfilled, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What scripture was that? Genesis chapter 15. Way before 22, Abraham believed God and it was imputed or granted to him, given to him as a gift, it was reckoned to him, was credited to his column purely by grace, purely by the love of God, given to Abraham plus nothing. Abraham didn't do anything for it, didn't earn it. It was just put in his column. And then, that's chapter 15 of Genesis, and then a few chapters later, 22, God comes to him and said, I'm here to collect the debt that you owe me. I'm here to collect... I want your son, and I want your only son, and I want him now, and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. 
And he does it. He goes right straight up that mountain. There's no commentary. If you read 22, it doesn't say he was fretting or worrying or couldn't sleep that night or that he was nothing. It, it, the, the text is so stark. It just shows Abraham doing what God said. And the book of Hebrews later tells us that Abraham went up that mountain believing that even if he killed Isaac on that mountain, that God would raise him from the dead. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. It was given to Abraham in chapter 15. It was justified or proven right in chapter 22. And he didn't have to sacrifice his son for it. Then he gives a second example, very short. Rahab, the opposite of Abraham, for goodness sakes, a prostitute. She knew very little about God. All she knew is that they had heard these stories about God. They were, army of Israel was at the gates of Jericho. They're going to toot some horns and down the walls are going to come. And she believed it. She didn't know anything about God, had no relationship with God, but she trusted him. And she hid the spies and then she sent them. Verse 25, the same way Rahab is justified or proven to be a believer by her works because she received the spies and sent them out another way. And then 26, he says it again. Just like a body. He's saying you can have a body, but without its spirit, it is a dead body. And he's saying faith is like that. If faith is not uh, embodied or emboldened by a, a work, an obedience, a love, a grace, a loyalty, an allegiance to God like that, it's not living faith, it's dead faith. So, is it faith alone? Is it works alone? Is it faith plus works and I'm going to suggest that you think deeply about this this week. Is James saying it's faith alone? No. Is he saying it's works alone? No. Is he saying it's faith plus works? No. He's saying it's faith like Rahab had and like Abraham had. A faith that trusted the God of Scripture. Another way to put it would be is it faith, trust, obedience, reliance? You see, it's all a package. You can't separate any of them, nor should you. James isn't saying you can separate them, and never did Paul say that. Never. So what he's saying, is it that faith that's empty and dead? Or is it faith that is full? Faith that is in the faithful one. What was Abraham's faith in? The faithful one. What was Rahab's faith in? The faithful God of the Hebrews. And their faith got worked out because they trusted that God. Let me read you this and you'll get it. I hope, I hope. If you don't get it with this, then uh, come back next week. We'll try to get it, get a little bit better. Listen to this. Book of Hebrews. Wonderful. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, and instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, 
they, they would have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin. He's saying the sacrificial system, obeying it scrupulously, wasn't enough to cleanse sin. It was just pointing to something else. What's it pointing to? But in these sacrifices, we're just being reminded of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and animals to take away our sin. Consequently, because it's impossible that those animals can't take away your sin, listen to this, this is absolutely remarkable. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Jesus said these words probably more than once when he came into the world. This was his word to God his Father. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Do you see, Jesus came and he said repeatedly, I do what the Father wills. I, the Father loves me because I obey him. The Father hears me because I obey Him, I love Him, I do what He says, I do everything that He likes. I am, God Himself said, Behold, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Perfect obedience, perfect motive, perfect heart, perfect life, perfect Savior, the faithful One who took Isaac's place on Mount Moriah and who took Rahab's place under the sword of God's judgment and the general Joshua. Jesus died in our place for us, fulfilling this, not so you don't have to be obedient, but so that you could, and so that you would want to, that you would not do it out of debt, but because you love and respect and honor Him who gave His life for you and me. And that doesn't happen in a day, in a moment, in a second. It's a lifetime, folks, of working through your challenges and your issues and God crossing you at certain places and saying, I want you to give this up or I want you to add this to your life. I want you to bring this this thing in that maybe will cause you some discomfort or push you in a direction you don't want to go. But will you do it? You see, is your love for Him of that caliber. And that's all He's asking. He's simply asking what I ask you every week. Will you trust Me? Will you trust Him? Will you give your life to Jesus Christ and then trust Him with your junk? Don't try to clean it up first and then come. You won't ever do it. It'll be dead faith. Living faith gathers up all the crud in our life, puts it in a a, a sack and heads off to the cross. And there you find the faithful one who will slowly through a lifetime of trust and obedience and willing, sometimes not willing, but you just stay with him. 
and things will be done in your life that you could never have done on your own. I hope you'll trust Him. Let's pray. Father, um, this is extraordinarily encouraging uh, if we will just take it in and let it go into our hearts and not see it as a burden that we've got to do these things in order for you to love us. You already loved us and gave us all things. You're not asking us to repay you. You're not asking us to do anything to work off the debt. You're just asking us to be in a relationship with you that is honoring and wholesome and good where we worship you in spirit and in truth and love you and serve you. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us this truth as James is doing and help us to understand it. We pray in his great name. Amen.